our message this morning. That should be Romans chapter 3. I was tempted to think, well, the Lord had us read that chapter today. That's a chapter you would have noted. It's actually a special offering that the Apostle took uh, in the New Testament Scriptures. And you, you see it in some of the epistles and in Acts. Uh, it was to relieve some of the great need of the believers in Judea. And uh, Paul was talking in the chapter there about other churches giving his confidence and boasting in the Corinthians giving the men that had been set aside and trusted uh, with that task of overseeing the monies and so forth. So, I don't know, maybe I should take a special offering today. Preachers don't usually need a lot of plotting to do that. But, um, no, you folks, we just had report of your generosities in this last year and many special offerings that were given. We thank God for those. But Romans chapter 3 should be uh, right on where we're supposed to be for our message today, so we're in the right chapter there. I want to read just the opening eight verses as we begin our, our thoughts and our studies into this chapter and our ongoing work in this epistle. So Romans 3 and verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. We should add there the term translated damnation often has reference not to that final damnation, but a, a condemnation. And I think here, and we'll comment on this in the message, whose condemnation is just, is right in the context because there's a condemnation of the argument that Paul was rehearsing in the mouths of others here. But we'll end our reading. We trust the Lord to add His own blessing to the public reading of His inspired Word. And we'll ask you again to join together with me. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in a word of prayer. A gracious... Heavenly Father, it is with joy that we've sung with your people today those amazing words of testimony, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Lord, help us with such gospel thoughts today. Lord, give us grace in reading and considering thoughts that are contrary to that gospel and perversions of that gospel as we've read of them today. And we ask your help in doing it. In Jesus' worthy name, 
Amen. The book of Hebrews opens with memorable, remarkable, and vitally important words. I hope I can quote them accurately. I did not write them out in full, perhaps trusting the memory, as our brother suggested, a little scary at such an age. But it opens with these words, God who at sundry, that's an older version of different times and in diverse ways, spake unto the fathers in time past by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And there's an affirmation there that God spoke in different ways in the past. I want to put before you a question. It's a final exam question on one of my courses in the seminary. You haven't had that course, I don't think any of you, so you're at some disadvantage, but here's the question. What is the significance of the statement, actually in Hebrews itself as well, that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith? We read that in Hebrews 11, the first of that catalog of different characters that by faith did those various parts of their testimony that's recorded in Scripture. What's the significance of the fact that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith? Well, the significance is that tells us that Abel was a recipient of revelation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. There's a reason I put that as a question. It's in the course on theological systems. Because there's some that suggest that Well, the changes from dispensation to dispensation. And they accuse us who see the unity of the covenant of grace, of of reading the New Testament back into the Old and so forth. But yet we have evidence in Scripture that those Old Testament characters possessed revelation and even possessed revelation that we don't have recorded that they possessed. And I use that verse with regard to Abel as an illustration of that. Now there are some great cares, principles we need to add with that assertion, but that vital truth. One, we can't just go on uh, making up our own version of the history of the revelation that those patriarchs and others received. We can't make up our own apocryphal book of Abel and say, yeah, God told him all this stuff, and then we just start our own story. So obviously we can't do that. But the second vital understanding is this, that whatever God was pleased to reveal to them that isn't recorded explicitly for us in Scriptures is obviously going to be compatible with the rest of Scripture, with what is recorded. And that's where you come into the places in the New Testament where Christ rebukes those that possess the Old Testament for their ignorance of certain things. And here, I just highlight to you the, the, the truth and the wonder that all men have received revelation. We've seen that in the opening of Romans, even dealing with the Gentiles who had light shining to them. This truth they clearly understood but they sought to suppress it. They sought to come out from under it. Truth revealed, understood, and embraced 
is perhaps the greatest of all blessings. But revelation rejected or twisted and perverted, as we read in verse 8, is worthy of condemnation. Twisting scriptures, as Paul says in another place, to their own destruction. Well, as we come into this third chapter of Romans in our progressive studies of this vital book, we come now and see that Paul is doing explicitly and in rapid succession in these opening eight verses that we've read what he did implicitly and with fuller discussion in chapter 2. And that is he's anticipated an objection. We see that one that he says in chapter 2 verse 1, Who art thou, O man? That judgest. And he works through, and in chapter 2, he's dealt with the fact that after he's described the Gentile world, after he's described the world at large in its suppression of truth, in its guilt, and the manifestation of their perversions and sinfulness, and their rightfully being under the judgment of God, he thinks of somebody that might say, Amen to chapter 1. Yeah, those Gentiles are a pretty wicked lot. Uh, Sure glad we're not like them. Sure glad we're exempt from that condemnation. And of course he highlights that this was the thinking of many of the Jews when it comes to name this potential objector in verse 17 of that chapter. But I say what he's done there uh, with one objection as it were and done at length. He now in chapter 3 just does in rapid fire. He holds out some objections arguments against this teaching that are floating around, if you will. We don't have to suggest here that these are just hypothetical arguments. I agree with many that suggest what Paul's dealing with here are the actual arguments that were coming to him all along the way as he traveled and went to the various synagogues. These things the Jews were saying, well, if that's true, then you're saying there's no advantage even to being a Jew. If that's true, then, well... How can God judge us if, if He's righteous and, and He overrules our sin for His glory? And well, the more I sin, the more glory God gets. And, and Paul just begins to hammer away at these objections. Hammer away at the ungodly logic, if you will, of these suggestions. And so what I want us to do as we come in and hopefully come through all eight of these verses today Uh, I confess as I approach the message today, I have two fears. I have one, the fear that it will be too short. And I have two, the other fear that it will be way too long. Uh, So we'll see how we go in our progression here. But there there are little pieces of truth that we could take and go through the whole Bible and, and all those various pieces of that. But yet I don't want to get lost or lose the main argument and flow of what Paul is dealing with here. And so as we come to consider these objections today, I was trying to think even of a title. Well, I'm going to give you a strange title for our message today, but here it is. Don't even think it. Don't even think it. Because in essence, that's what Paul is saying when he addresses these objections that are brought against his teaching. There's a little phrase that he uses we may mention later on in our message today. It's translated in our authorized version in verse 4 and in verse 6. God forbid. Uh, If you ever study Greek, you'll find in the Greek text that the word God isn't in that phrase. 
So how did it get translated that way? Uh, I was unaware until studying even for this message that in some of the older literature, back Old Testament connections, Greek usages and so forth, that the name of God or the, the, the concept, if you will, of God isn't absent from how some of these words are used, but what Paul's really saying there, it's usually or often translated, may it never be. Some uh, paraphrases even go forward and say, perish the thought. Well, it's from that that I'm getting our little phrase for a title today, don't even think it. Because that's how low, really, uh, on the moral totem pole, if you will, uh, some of the arguments are that Paul is having to refute and deal with here in these objections to his teaching of the gospel of grace. And it is quite evident that these objections still are flowing from those in the Jewish community. But as we've said all along in our teaching in Romans 2, the application is not just for Jews. In the growth of the New Testament church, there have been many of Christian background for whom the same thinking, the same good, godly, scriptural heritage, and then some of the same sins and neglects and false arguments really belong. So let's not shield ourselves behind the the Jewish origin of these discussions. So I want today just to put three statements to you uh, to frame our thoughts and our treatment of the verses that we've read. And the first statement is this. Greater light is an incomparable privilege. Greater light is an incomparable privilege. The chapter opens with the phrase of the question, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? I'm almost tempted to give another quiz today, and that's to you folks that have been in this course. Uh, Very often I preach from this passage when we come to a infant baptism service. The connections between New Testament paedo-baptism and circumcision and all those discussions and difficulties we've dealt with before. But I think there's there's a truth here, and I've used an outline for that particular message, which I'll just repeat for you now if I can remember it. But there is a spiritual reality that prompts this question. What advantage has the Jew? What profit is there circumcision? Well, what's the spiritual reality that prompts that question? It's what he dealt with in the conclusion of chapter 2. These arguments from the Jew that somehow thinks he's exempt from the judgment that the, the Gentiles rightly are underneath. Well, Paul said, you're sinful too. You're under God's condemnation too. We'll see, beginning in verse 9 of the third chapter, that's the big conclusion. Universal guilt, universal depravity, universal need of salvation is the conclusion of this whole opening argument of Romans, the revelation of God's wrath. And he said that spiritual reality is what's at stake, not your heritage, not your profession. He's not a Jew, which is one outwardly. You're not really a child of God just by having undergone the ritual of circumcision. You're not really a child of God just by claiming to be His. 
True circumcision, truly belonging to the people of God, is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of spiritual reality and not outward heritage, not outward profession. And so the spiritual reality that prompts this question is that. It doesn't matter if you're religious. You've been to church. You've got all the boxes checked of church stuff. Walked an aisle, raised a hand, signed a membership card, all that stuff. What matters is whether you're born again or not. And so you might say, well, what, what's it matter then? Paul, you're preaching this to us in the synagogues. You're opening the Old Testament and preaching Jesus to us. You're, you're preaching this about spiritual reality to us. So you're saying, it doesn't matter that we're Jews. What advantage has the Jew? And my second point in that other sermon is this. The sudden retort that probes this question. Much every way. There are real advantages to being a Jew. And don't sarcastically, when you fight against the gospel I'm preaching, suggest that I'm saying there aren't advantages. And of course he highlights the chief of those. Much every way. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. It's interesting because Paul uses a term here, it's translated for us chiefly. It could be firstly, uh, but there's no secondly or thirdly, there's just the firstly. Now in chapter 9, in the opening verses of that chapter, he's going to outline a couple more bullet points of advantages that the Jews did have. But here he just stops with one. And that chief one is that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And so I just put to you again this opening statement. Greater light is an incomparable privilege. If you look at history, and one of the reasons I wanted to open with that quotation from Hebrews today, light was shining before the oracles of God the scriptures began to be given. In that same class, I, I draw a chart on the board and a little outline of history. And I, I move pretty good ways, more than a third of the way down that chart, and I draw a little tick, and I put underneath it the date 1446 B.C. And I ask the guys, what's the significance of that date? And if... They've had Old Testament introduction before they have theological systems. They'll say, ah, I remember that date. That's the date of the Exodus. When Israel came out of Egypt. Well, that's when God began to give to Moses the first five books of the Bible. And I have them hopefully staring at that timeline while I bring that up and think, well, wait a minute. More than a third of history... It's already gone before the first words of the Bible were given. But light was shining. Truth had been given. By faith, Abel offered his sacrifice. There was an understanding. I mean, seriously. Do you think the thought occurred to the natural mind, even the fallen natural mind? We've transgressed God's law. The penalty of that, we've been told. We shall surely die. We'll fix this. 
will kill one of his animals. It didn't work that way. It couldn't work that way. God revealed to them His gracious method of salvation to deal with sinners in the person of a substitute. And that substitute is emblematically shown in that animal upon which the offerer was to come and lay his hands. That symbolizing the transfer of guilt. That symbolizing that this animal stands in the place of this offerer. That this animal is receiving in type and picture what this offerer is supposed to receive. Which is the judgment of death. And of course all of that pointing forward to the future sacrifice that would not be an animal. Wouldn't be a type or a shadow. It would be that second man. The one Eve thought had been given when Cain was born. And she exclaimed, Behold, I've gotten the man from the Lord. This light was shining. Light was suppressed piece by piece until sin so spread over the world that God in judgment sent the flood. But He honored the promise that of the seed of the woman, that Savior would come. That second man would come. And when the nations after Noah's family had come out of the ark and the world had been repopulated, again, fell into deep apostasy and sin, God honored His promise not to destroy the earth again by a flood. So instead of wiping out the nations, He called a man out of the nations... Abraham, if you remember our studies of his life some years ago now, when Abraham journeyed from Mesopotamia and came into the land of promise, what's the first thing he did? He built an altar in the midst of the land. And even those that were more advanced in their sin, those Canaanite nations that were awaiting the judgment of God, As God told Abraham that his seed would be a stranger in Egypt for 400 years, and then he would bring them back to that land. He said, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But he gave testimony. He just put a light again on the truth of the gospel that even those Amorites had known and had suppressed. And so this light is shining But the light had been suppressed and abandoned. We see those cycles of apostasy. But in calling Abraham and in establishing that nation, God began to give more light. And Israel was the recipient of that greater light. And you see, in their ceremonial laws, that the truths of the Gospel were even more explicitly given in detail. If you wrestle with some of that, I encourage you, if you have the patience to work through a little bit older language, not quite as old as the authorized version, but get Andrew Bonner's commentary on Leviticus. Uh, You'll never have a, a prejudice against that book again, I promise you. 
Israel received those oracles of God. Recipients of the word. And for this Jewish objector to say, well, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then none of this has mattered. It doesn't even matter. What, what advantage does the Jew have? And Paul doesn't let him go. He says, no, much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. You've had the word. You've had more light than these Gentiles that you so despise have had. You've had more light than these people that you think you're so different from have had. But what have you done with it? You've squandered it. And of course, that's what Paul was busy doing in the synagogues. We have that phrase in Acts, opening and alleging. Opening from where? The Old Testament Scriptures. Alleging from where? The Old Testament Scriptures. Arguing from the light God gave that their Messiah must needs to have suffered and to have risen from the dead. He's preaching the Gospel to them. But here... These Jews have perverted it. They've had light shining and they've missed it. Again, we can say, well, we're we're okay. We're not making that mistake. We believe in Jesus. We know He's the promised one. But yet, how many times, and we certainly don't have time to flesh this out, But even in the history of the New Testament church, has light been shining? Have the fullness of the Scriptures, Old and now New Testaments, been given and been twisted? Can you not come to look at the evolution of Romanism? To a religion of privilege? To a religion of ceremonial initiation? You stay in the good graces of the church, and you're different than others. Let's get others to get this ceremony and be part of this church too. And no Christ. No grace. I encourage you to think, if you are ever given, to read through our substandards, the Westminster Confession. I know in the American version of the confession, some of this was filtered out over the years, but the language of Antichrist with reference to Romanism. That's not a theological curse word. It's not trying to call the Pope the worst name we can think of and just leave it at that. That prefix anti, again, remember, it often means instead of, not just always meaning against. And that's the point of criticizing Romanism in that way. There's so many things, be it the papacy, the priesthood, the mass, the sacraments, all of these things that are put before the communicant instead of Christ. But we don't leave it there. What of evangelicals? What of evangelicals that have been brought up thinking that, well, what we term easy believism, that they're engaging in the rituals of an evangelical church? 
I preached a sermon many, many years ago now, perhaps in the follies of youth. You have the follies of the memory stumbles in age. Well, we have follies in youth too, but I preached a message, the seven sacraments of fundamentalism. And one of our ministers heard of it. It raised an eye. How do you deal with this one? I said, well, well, not re-preach it, but you can find a parallel to all of Rome's sacraments in the modern evangelical church. The decision mill of altar calls. I'm not opposed to a minister making an appeal after a message. If we've preached the gospel, it's a very good and appropriate time to invite sinners to believe and receive Christ. But it got turned into a machine. It got turned into the point that myriads, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to use that word, myriads of people in our nation went through the motions of an evangelical, man-centered, easy-believism distortion of the Gospel and never got to Christ. Never embraced grace. It resulted in false assurance for many that have lived unchanged and wicked lives since the point of their decision. And oftentimes it resulted in the lack of assurance and people that were genuinely born again and yet wrestled with an impoverished understanding of Jesus. And here's where I say it behooves us to make the right use of the light we have. Greater light is an incomparable privilege. The Jews were trying just to put something in Paul's mouth and he just immediately cuts it off. But I want to hurry here today and come to my second statement for you. Perversions of the gospel cannot overturn the gospel. Perversions of the gospel cannot overturn the gospel. Paul says, if you look in verse 3, he brings up another Potential objection. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? There's a perverse syllogism some have suggested that this argument is based on. And it goes something like this. God entered into a covenant with the Jews. I'm a Jew, therefore I'm in the covenant. Well, Paul's going to deal with what being a true Jew is He's already introduced it at the close of chapter 2. He's going to deal with it in chapters 9 to 11 as we come to that portion of the epistle. The point here is this. This thought that, well, if, if this unbelief is present, but wait a minute, God's made a covenant with the Jews anyway, then my unbelief isn't going to overturn God's covenant. So I'm okay. And you can... Almost see Paul out in the lobby of the synagogue and some guy that's offended at his sermon bringing this on. But, but I'm a Jew. God's in covenant with us. And Paul just having to take him back to the end of chapter 2. Paul having to take him back to what he's going to deal with in Romans 11. Again, spiritual reality. 
being born again and not just born of the seed of Abraham. But he brings this, God forbid, perish the thought, may it never be. It follows on. He says here, that God be true and every man a liar as it is written. And then he quotes from Psalm 51. Thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged or his judgment might prevail. God's going to judge according to truth. We saw in chapter 2. And here this man that somehow thinks, well, it doesn't matter then if I don't believe, if I don't follow what you're saying about Jesus. I'm a Jew, I'm okay. No. And then he says, verse 5, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what should we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Here he just brings on another argument, this Jewish objector. Well, if my unrighteousness is overcome by God's faithfulness, by, by God's righteousness, then, then my unrighteousness doesn't matter. This is something Paul's actually going to deal with at length and from a little different perspective, but really the same thing in chapter 6. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May it never be. Perish the thought. Don't even think it. Paul actually adds to this one when he says, Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? You're arguing like, well... If my unrighteousness doesn't matter, if it just gives a, a, an avenue for God to display Himself and display His righteousness, then it would be wrong for God to judge me. And Paul actually apologizes for repeating these arguments. They're so irreverent that he has to pause. And you see that little parenthesis there. I speak as a man. I'm just saying what is put out there but i got to distance myself from it. And God forbid, don't even think it. This perversion of the gospel. But this isn't uncommon. For the Jews out, I say, in the lobby of the synagogue to say to Paul, well, if what you're saying is true, then sin doesn't even matter. And maybe the more I sin, the better God looks because He's just forgiven more. what Paul deals with in Romans 9. It's interesting, he doesn't rebuke the logic of the argument because there's a perverted logic in it. Not really a true logic. An understanding, logical flow. But he doesn't rebuke the logic. He rebukes the impiety. And he just puts it out there in Romans 9. Yea, but oh man, who art thou that replies against God? And you're putting this out there that, well, Paul, if what you're saying is true, we should just go on and sin. Makes God look all the better. Don't even think it. Paul is so put off by the irreverence, the sinfulness, the blindness of this argument that even in letting it be known, the argument's out there. It's like, I apologize for even mentioning it it's so irreverent god forbid perversions of the gospel 
cannot overturn the gospel. But these perversions are constant. Actually, again, if you know your church history, one of the things the reformers were accused of by the church of Rome was preaching this license. If you go preaching that gospel of grace, the people don't need and need to rest on these religious exercises and privileges within the mother church, then you're just going to be promoting sin among the people. God forgives sin. God's gracious. Live like the devil. I'm trying to recall now the brief title of a a Puritan message contradicting that charge. I'm only going to get about two-thirds of it. It was something like a brief message um, uh, clearing the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone from the unjust charge of antinomianism being a letter written by a minister in the country to somebody else. It's a very brief title. I'm sure it would fit on any small paperback with room to spare. But the charge when grace is preached always comes. Well, if you believe that, then you're just promoting wickedness. Again, don't even think it. God forbid. Spiritual reality, gospel grace, doesn't produce that in the lives of those who are forgiven. But the ungodly heart, the one that wants to twist Scripture, twist truth to its own destruction, goes in that way. And of course, Paul elaborates here when he says, and not rather as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say. There are people out there that are saying, this is what I'm preaching. Let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is justified. The fact that they're saying falsehoods, the fact that they're inventing wrong arguments, makes them worthy of condemnation. It's not what our gospel is saying at all. But there's a third statement and point I want to put before you today just as we close. God's faithfulness is beyond reproach. Paul's not going to leave this truth, as it were, undefended. In many ways, I've already preached the material underneath this statement. But the point is this, God's faithfulness is such a given. I mean, think of statements in Scripture like the God who cannot lie. Not the God who doesn't lie. God who chooses not to lie. God who cannot lie. There's basic theology. There's basic definitive truth about God as God that cannot be overturned. It cannot be denied. And these arguments are so out of bounds that Paul says, don't even think it. God's faithfulness is absolute. God's faithfulness is beyond reproach. These people that are wanting to say, well, Paul, your gospel just says it doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, really? 
You're saying, well, if, if God's going to overlook your sin in order to magnify His faithfulness, then is He going to overlook the Gentile sin too? And then there's no judgment? Well, no Jew's going to admit to that. Well, of course there's a judgment. And the Gentiles, they really get it. And of course we get all the good stuff. And Paul says, no, God's faithfulness is beyond reproach. These attacks on the doctrines of grace are not founded in truth. They're not even founded in true logic. They're founded in the sinister, wicked, depraved heart of man that twists the truth to its own destruction. That twists the truth to defend itself. Believers in the Gospel don't defend themselves. They sing as we did today, preserved by Jesus, when my feet made haste to hell, and there should I have gone. It's where I deserve to be today. It's where I deserve to go for eternity. But God has intervened. God has chosen to judge my sin in the person of another. God has brought to fruition in history what He promised Abel. And what Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel understood. And Cain perverted. And Abel believed. The truth of grace, the good news of the righteousness of God revealed from first to last by faith as it is written, the justified by faith shall live. Paul's bringing the old, old message of Jesus. And these unbelieving, objecting Jews and many an unbelieving person with Christian heritage in the modern age has done the same. But Paul's answer to these objections that are antagonistic and without an understanding of the Gospel, his response and retort to them all, don't even think it. Our God is just. Our God is faithful. His Gospel is true. And it is an amazing message of grace that breathes life into dead sinners. Here, these objections are brought, and Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. Don't even think it. The Gospel doesn't operate that way at all. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would give us grace. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, convince us today of the amazing privilege, the incomparable blessing of being recipients of Scripture. Lord, we have every blessing that Paul said Israel had. We have beyond that this very inspired letter in the remainder of the New Testament that gives even greater light to those pictures and shadows that 
did give much light in the Old Testament days. Lord, don't let us neglect it. Don't let us pervert it to our own worldly-minded religious convenience. To have our sin and a Savior too. That's what Israel, in effect, was doing. Lord, it's done by many, many in our own day. Don't let it be done by any here in this room, we pray. So take your word. Bless it to us, we ask, in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.